0: Chen Yinglong was no longer practicing at the hospital, but his student was, and his student was uh, was Dr. Shur. And so this guy wrote me a letter, I uh, wrote me a, a little note of introduction to Dr. Shur. And so once I got settled in, uh, in Xiamen, first thing I did was go over to the hospital and see if I could uh, internship uh, with Dr. Shur. And um, yeah, he was excited about it, but they had to get uh, permission from Beijing. So that took a little while, and they didn't know what to charge me or how to do anything at all. And it was, this is a long time ago. so they had the, they had separate foreigner money, and there was there was foreigner money and there was Chinese people money. I'm
1: Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. You hear about the mind-body connection. Have you noticed, that patients, new patients in particular, are often in the process of what I'm going to call talking themselves into acupuncture. They come in and say things like, it's been around for thousands of years, so there must be something to it. Or I believe in the mind-body connection. I like that one, the mind-body connection. I've been a fan of it too. It sounded right when I first heard it, seem to give a kind of escape route from the reductionist tyranny of biology. But as time's gone on, I found that phrase to be a bit sterile. Like, there's a map, much like you'd see when you pull up a Google map. It shows you the route that you want, but it leaves out the topography. Low-lying areas of stagnant water where there are trees, layers of wild cats, and the shortcut routes that kids cut through unfenced yards. I've come to consider it more like a mind-body entanglement, like the way tree roots entangle with the soil, bugs, snakes, and burring critters. Entanglement, like how knowledge and uncertainty dance together, or the way that ideas have fully thought entangle with faith, belief, or desire. Look at an acupuncture chart, and much like that Google map, you'll see the simplified version of the Jing Mai. But in reality, the channels are entangled watershed-like entities, and when you zoom out, there are delineations between Yang Ming and Xiaoyang. But as you look closer, you'll fail to find a clear border. Mind-body entanglement is more descriptive of the confused jumble our patients bring to us. As much as I'd love to have a single clear definitive diagnosis. In reality, I'm only capable of catching a particular dynamic at a moment in time and space. Often enough, it allows to be helpful in that moment but the river keeps flowing and sometimes if your treatment has been skilled and accurate, it's flowing differently. Good acupuncture, creates a bifurcation point that does set people off on a different trajectory. It's satisfying work. I rather enjoy meeting people along their journey for a few treatments and then step aside so they can get on with their life. I suspect the best treatments are those that in short order the patient forgets as they're simply involved with living their life with ease and capacity. But often enough, as we are entangled beings, it's not just mind body, but individual collective. And then there are the stories of identity that we ceaselessly whisper to ourselves. And so there are the entanglements of acceptance, identity, loyalty, and belonging. It's difficult to see our entanglements. There are the water in which we swim, the beliefs preferences, opinions, hopes, and hates that create a solid sense of separate being. Our physiology and psychology? Completely intermingled. Our history, family, and culture? mm, Unavoidable. I find it helpful to consider entanglement because it reminds me of the chaotic noodle soup that is a human life. It's not necessarily something to be unraveled, but rather explored. Some people have a knack for pulling on some thread of interest to see where it goes and then where that goes and then to see what comes after that. Andy Ellis is one of those kinds of people. He's inquisitive and with an openness to seeing how an idea or opportunity just might pan out. Some people want to be sure that there's some kind of payoff for their efforts. Andy? Mm. he seems to come down more on the side of, I wonder what's up beyond that bend in the road. That inquisitiveness, it took him into the Chinese language in Taiwan, which in turn opened up unique opportunities to continue his study of acupuncture and herbal medicine, and eventually over to Xiamen on the mainland, and then increasingly into the world of Chinese herbs. If you've been in the trade for any amount of time, you've probably read a book or three that's available because of his efforts. We're going to get into all of this and more in a moment. Stay with us. These conversations are made possible through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Here's the quick lineup of offerings brought to you by the people that bring you geological. Looking to thrive in the holiday season? Mayway Herbs has solutions and resources for you. Practitioners crafting solutions for other practitioners? That's golden flower Chinese herbs. Listen for details on their free herbal guide. Herbs that both taste good and are effective? Yes, it's possible with Grifo Botanicals potent concentrates. And later in the show, a free teaching from Anne Cecil Sturman, be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers for listeners of the podcast. And if you'd like to get your podcast conversations served up ad-free, become a member.
2: Hi, folks. I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway
1: Herbs. During the holiday season, many of us find ourselves feeling stressed and overwhelmed. Between the hustle and bustle of shopping, cooking, and entertaining, it's easy to get caught up in the chaos and forget about our own well-being. That's why all of December, we're focusing our newsletter and podcast episodes on sleep and stress relief. We're also offering 15% off sleep and relaxation formulas, so stock up and save. Visit Maywe.com for sale details and to explore expert articles from our monthly newsletters. And check out our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions from industry leaders and respected health professionals. Just search for Chinese Medicine Matters on your favorite podcast streaming app and get ready to learn, heal, and thrive. So this season and every season, trust Mei for your health and wellness needs and as a source of TCM news and information. Happy holidays and thanks for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. Golden Flower Chinese Herbs, they got their start probably much like you. They saw that they could make a difference. Back in the day, quality herbs without adulterants sometimes hard to find. John Scott and Lorena Mondo, who founded Golden Flower Chinese Herbs, wanted top quality medicinals for their patients, families, and themselves. The solution to herbs without additives was to make their own. They cared about their patients and they wanted the best for them. Golden Flower Chinese Herbs uses both wisdom of the past and combines it with the innovation of the present. They have traditional formulas along with Novel modern ones to help you treat your patients with effective, potent herbal medicine in tablet form. Visit their website to get your own clinical guide that is also a helpful clinical manual. Practitioners crafting solutions for other practitioners. That's golden flower Chinese herbs. Visit them online at www.gfcherbs.com. Welcome to Shop Talk. In this portion of the podcast, we are bringing you roughly 15 minutes of practical clinical methods, perspectives, and advice that has its work boots on. This section is all about practical material that you can begin to investigate the next time that you walk into clinic. Additionally, visit the show notes page for supporting materials from this week's guest on Shop Talk. All right, roll up your sleeves Let's get to work.
2: Settle in for this shop talk and get ready for some serious ghostly fun. Today, I'm about to float and glide into the wonderfully enigmatic world of the 13 Ghost Points, an esoteric treatment I've been using in my practice for nearly two decades, and it's the subject of an upcoming book that we are writing on the 13 Ghost Points. I believe the ghost points, they're they're like the hidden gems in the acupuncture world. And, you know, they've been taught almost like a sidebar in acupuncture schools, shrouded in mystery and just simply misunderstood. I have embraced the power of the ghost points through the understanding that it it really demands a certain level of practitioner self-cultivation before their potency can be fully realized. Today I'm hoping to shed some light on how I use these and teach them, and how you can begin to cultivate a deeper understanding of these points, and maybe even harness them for their transformative power in your own life and practice. I'm Lita Herman, the co-founder of the Alchemy Learning Center and the Alchemy Healing Center. The Alchemy Learning Center is a growing community of acupuncturists, healers, and self-cultivators from all over the world. Together, we're exploring Taoist alchemy and classical Chinese medicine as a means to unlocking our true potential and helping others to do the same. In this Shop Talk episode, I will show you how the ghost points can be an integral part of our alchemical Chinese medicine approach. Let's go back in time. The origins of the ghost points trace back to the earliest known Chinese physician, Que, who actually created 20 ghost points. However, the most renowned set that we know about today is the 13 ghost points, and they were assembled into a protocol by the king of medicine, Sun Si Miao, who was born in 581 of the Common era. Originally designed to cast out demons, these points are much more relevant in our modern day practices than you might think. I once believed the ghost points, they should be reserved for the most dire cases as a last resort. However, when I incorporated the ghost points into my practice, something really fascinating began to occur. The family members of the clients who had these treatments done witnessed profound shifts in their loved ones, and then they began wanting to have their own ghost point treatments done. They, too, carried traumas from their past, even if their symptoms were less pronounced. Many, many, many people have their own hidden baggage, or what I call skeletons in closets, even if they're not possessed by ghosts or guay in the traditional sense. I often say they're haunted by their past, and it's like they're a fish on a hook. As hard as they try to wriggle off those hooks, it's incredibly hard to actually break free. In today's modern landscape, I find that so many of my clients can benefit from the ghost points, and so many people from around the world have come to receive the treatment and study and learn more about the ghost points in their lives and in their practice. Why, you might be asking yourself. Because these points act as liberators, unshackling the chains of trauma and clearing the old baggage of this lifetime that's been cluttering up your life. Another way to look at these points is that they can help break up stuck cellular patterns on the physical level and let go of obsessive thought patterns on the mental level. Consequently, I now incorporate ghost points for anyone who has faced trauma or adversity, which includes nearly everyone, except maybe those fortunate individuals with idyllic childhoods, although, you know, even in the best of circumstances, life can still present challenges in the person's mind. So the question is, are the ghost points appropriate for you to use in a daily setting, say, during a one-hour acupuncture session? While I generally adhere to the original Sun Si point prescription as an almost ritualistic all-day protocol, I understand that treating a single client for up to four to six hours may sound a bit extreme to some practitioners. However, I have used it as a highly effective approach to cleansing accumulated baggage, which quite frankly takes time. You can't expect a patient to release something carried for their entire lifetime within the traditional one-hour setting format. However, if you're eager to embrace the ghost points, I suggest starting with a more accessible entry point. Given the significant self-cultivation you're going to need, I'm going to recommend today that you start by using the ghost points as single points. That being said, I'm going to recommend the points that are less activating or destabilizing for the majority of patients. This way, you can integrate them into a conventional one-hour session and potentially work up to offering longer treatments over time. One of the reasons we do the longer sessions is that the ghost points can potentially open a Pandora's box of trauma and emotions for some clients. Once that box is cracked open, even a little, you can't easily deal with all that comes out within an hour. It wouldn't be fair to end the session with everything heightened and activated, leaving the patient in a somewhat unstable state. For this reason, I advise caution using the ghost points, being fully aware of what you're asking that person to do during this work. That said, a few ghost points appear to be less triggering overall and align well with shorter sessions. After years of practice with hundreds of clients, I have found that these points seem to impart wisdom, gradually unveiling their true essence to me. With time, you'll begin to decode them and their impact on your patients becomes more evident. For our purposes today, I'm going to recommend two points. First, let's look at ghost palace or due 26, the initial point in the 13 ghost point sequence. I like to call this point the door to your palace. And the Chinese character used for this point is a large entryway where the palace guests are greeted, much like the door to a majestic hall. This point is located between the mouth and the nose, the most accessible entry points of the body. It's like your interface to the world. You breathe and eat and take in the world through this area. So the question is, what does this door represent for the patient, especially after trauma or negative life events? Was it once wide open, but now is bolted shut with only a peephole? Some people are naturally open and gregarious, and some people naturally have a closed door, But trauma can really affect how a person relates to the world, so this point is an ideal starting place. It's about the outermost public-facing part of you, so it doesn't tend to unearth those deep secrets like the ghost hidden point, which is traditionally Ren 1 for men. Ghost palace helps to restore a person's authentic interaction with the world— Another beneficial point, which seems to avoid being triggering, is Ghost Market, or REN24. I actually think we all need this point because we often struggle to put ourselves out in the world as healers. Ghost Market is about how we express ourselves in the world. Do we speak highly of ourselves or persistently undermine our worth? This point encapsulates the belief that each of us possesses a gift— a role to play in the world. We are cogs in the wheel, and when we withhold our gifts, the designated recipients of our gifts suffer, and the wheel doesn't turn. In other words, people out there need your unique Mm -hmm. gifts, and it's our responsibility to ensure that they receive the signals that indicate that we are offering something they may want and need. Imagine you're selling apples at a farmer's market. What would you write on your booth sign that's both honest and enticing enough for the person needing your apples to say, Yes, that's what I want. Even if your apples are some of the tastiest out there, but have the occasional worm in them, there will be someone out there who values the taste over the occasional imperfection and absolutely love your apples. So when you work with REN24, It seems to be a point that can profoundly benefit patients without triggering overwhelming reactions. Although you may not be able to unlock its full potential without doing the preceding points in the protocol, the results of doing the single point can still be astonishing. I once did this point in an expo in a brief 20-minute treatment at my booth. A year later, the woman returned recounting a life-transforming experience She believed the treatment changed her entire life, and she now had everything she wanted. She felt like the point dissolved some kind of barrier that had hindered her progress in the past. It enabled her to speak her truth and chase after what she truly wanted in her life, moving across the country, finding her romantic partner, and having the career she always dreamed of, all from one ghost point. Now, the method for working with ghost points that I use in my clinic and teach is quite unique. It's traditionally done with a vibrating technique. In our program, we teach students a non-needle vibrational technique where your finger takes the place of the needle and the energetic vibration occurs beneath the skin. It's a very powerful approach. If you choose to use a needle, you'll need to experiment with the vibrational technique that suits you best. Some practitioners insert the needle and then gently vibrate it, while others use a Toyahari-like technique with the needle hovering over the skin's surface and vibrating until once the point feels open and complete, then they insert the needle and retain it for a period of time. Traditionally, all the needles in the 13 ghost points protocol are retained and removed in reverse order. Regardless of your preference for needles or our non-needle technique, The crucial factor is to proceed patiently, allowing whatever needs to surface to manifest for the client. An essential aspect of mastering the ghost points involves knowing when to insert yourself into the treatment and when to remain an observant guide. It's equally vital to stay in the room with the person even after the needles are inserted as they might need time to process the experience with your presence. I've encountered patients who have told stories of undergoing ghost point sessions with other practitioners who left them alone in the room, an emotionally unsettling experience. Alchemy and alchemical treatments center around facilitation, not fixing the client or healing the client. It's about walking alongside your client temporarily, bearing witness to any shifts that transpire, This is what I believe is the truest form and power of this incredible work. So to summarize, the ghost points hold tremendous power, yet cultivating their potential takes time and dedication. As a starting place, I recommend selecting one or two ghost points for initial cultivation. Ghost Palace, due 26, is an excellent starting point for clients struggling to authentically express themselves in the world, while Ghost Market, Ren 24, is a great choice for those who struggle with positive self-expression. Utilizing a vibrating technique, either with a needle inserted, hovering over the point, or by exploring our non-needle technique, which I personally feel is even more powerful, but that is just how I practice and teach. If you're interested in discovering more in the realm of alchemical work, we have a number of online CEU classes on our alchemylearningcenter.com. Additionally, a new alchemy apprenticeship group will start this fall, designed to focus and guide your path and make this work more accessible and effective. Our goal is to facilitate deep connection with the ghost points within yourself, enabling you to utilize the transformative power in your own life and then eventually in your clinic. We also invite you to explore our podcast, the Inspired Action Podcast, dedicated to conversations about alchemy, the five elements, and the nine palaces. I hope you enjoyed this shop talk on the potential of the ghost points. Thank you for joining me on this transformative exploration of alchemical healing. And keep an eye out for our new book on the 13 ghost points entitled The 13 Ghost Points Clearing and Transcending Life's Traumas, due out in the first part of 2024.
1: I know many of us have a hard time getting patients to take herbs. Patients often balk at the number of pills I tell them or cringe at the taste of the powders. My friends over at Griffo Botanicals, they found a solution. Their tinctures are super easy to take and actually taste pretty good. Imagine telling your patients take one teaspoon per day and it kind of tastes like vanilla extract. Blows your mind, right? Now, imagine these tinctures being made from the best herbs and being more concentrated than any other tincture on the market. Do I have your attention yet? And what have I told you? They also come in beautiful antique bottles that patients just love. And furthermore, they can be had for about the price of tea pills. Now I suspect I have your attention. Try them out at griffobotanicals.com. That's G R I F F O Botanicals.com. Griffobotanicals, the taste of potent medicine. <music> Andy Ellis, welcome back to Geological.
0: Thanks, Michael. Good to be here. Always fun to hang out with you. Never know what's going to happen. That's true. That's true. Usually it's dumplings. Ah, dumplings is a good idea.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's In fact, I don't think it's ever a bad idea, is it?
0: <laughs> well, there may be times, but uh, that'll be, be a topic for a different show, I think.
1: It would be. So today... We're here because uh, it's the Chinese Medicine History Channel. Oh, I didn't know about that. Yeah, yeah. You know, in our trade, we really like to trace our history back like thousands and thousands of years. But something I've gotten really curious about is like how Chinese medicine landed in the States, especially like in the Western community, back when it kind of started up. You know, if you go back to the 50s, there's no, like, regular white Americans practicing acupuncture, I don't think. This stuff started up. When did it start up? I mean, you've been here since kind of the beginning, and I'm really curious to know, what was it like in the beginning? I mean, what were you doing back at the time when you first heard about acupuncture? What was going on in your world?
0: Well, I was um, I was in my, in my 20s and uh i was uh teaching special education that's what i was doing for a living at least and uh so those were the old uh, hippie days and uh so we're talking about 1970s 1975 76 so probably heard about acupuncture maybe i forget when uh when that guy went to uh when the guy went to china yeah the nixon guy yeah exactly uh so i remember hearing about that when it happened but it didn't really have a big impact on me. It wasn't anything I was thinking about. but after teaching um special education for about twelve years, I realized that <clears throat> I was gonna have to do something different eventually that uh, it was too exhausting. <laughs> it was that was very tiring work. And so I started to look around and uh, there was a the acupuncture school in Boston had that uh, had opened up uh, dr Dr. so and uh, And so I looked into it, yeah. But why
1: acupuncture? I mean, what was it that was going on in your life besides, ooh, I think I need a new career? I get that. A lot of us have been there. But why acupuncture? I mean, what was it that caught your attention? And and, I mean, what problem was it going to solve for you besides, maybe I can make a living?
0: Gosh, I don't think making a living was high on the list. You know, I was single and you don't need a lot of money when you're single. So that was not, if that was the motivation, I, I think I would have chosen a different field. No, you know, I was in the helping professions. I, did, I taught special education and uh, I had done that for a long time. And I realized uh, what that did for my soul, not for uh, for my pocketbook. And, uh, and so I wanted something similar to that to help people. And so... You know, that was what uh, it seemed like a cool thing. I have to admit, you know, when you're in your twenties, you're kind of looking for something that's cool. You know, if you if you meet a, a girl and you want to, uh, because this was girls, so I was in my twenties. Yeah, they were maybe they were young women. If you meet a young woman at that time, then uh, you know you want to say, what are you doing? And if, if if you're you know selling stocks or something, I guess that's that didn't seem so cool. So I think I wanted to be cool. But after I got into it, of course, all that faded away. It was very it was, it was a lot of work to learn Chinese medicine. So,
1: wait a minute, wait a minute. You went into acupuncture so you could look good for
0: girls? Exactly. Yeah, I'm sure that was a factor. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it looks good on my business card, but I don't have any business cards cuz I'm kind of a hippie.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that no, yeah, I I mean to be honest, I think that that was that was you know, it was a cool thing. It was a nice thing to do and it was in it was the same as teaching in terms of uh you know, it was it was the helping profession.
1: Yeah, another way to help folks.
0: And then, uh, you know, things things got a little out of hand. I thought I was just going to acupuncture school. And uh, I went to the New England School of Acupuncture, and Dr. So was there. But he had just, um, he was having some health issues at the time. And uh, and he quit uh, probably about a year into my, my stay at the New England School of Acupuncture. So I decided I would quit as well. And uh, I asked him, you know, what next? And he said, well go to Taiwan so uh, somebody probably said that to you at some point Michael I, I've heard that <laughs> I have heard that yes and so he arranged uh, you know for me to study with a he, he had a friend who was also from the uh, the Cheng Dan An school which is the the school that uh, he had uh, the school of, of, of acupuncture that he had studied with and he, he introduced me to him and I went to Taiwan I had a friend who bought me an airplane ticket of course I had no money. And I got to Taiwan and knew very little Chinese. I had um, I had studied a little bit of Chinese, you know, on my own. I took a, a, a I audited a class at Smith College, and then uh, and started to translate Chinese medicine books. That was back in you know we're talking about nineteen
1: eighty. Nineteen eighty. Okay, so <laughs> let's rewind this for just a second. I keep hearing about this Doctor So character. I don't know Doctor So, and. But I hear a lot of folks, like back from the early days, they say, well, you know, of course, Dr. So. So who is this Dr. So?
0: Yeah, his name is Su Tian something. I can't remember. But he called him James. It was his first name. I guess in Cantonese, Su comes out as So. So he was uh, he was Dr. So, Dr. James Tin Yin. So Tian Tian Yin, maybe Tin Yin So? Uh, in any case, uh, he was the, he was the only teacher pretty much at the uh, acupuncture school in, uh, the New England school of acupuncture. And, uh, he was a pretty typical, you know, what I, what turned out to be, I didn't know it at the time, but typical, uh, uh, his teaching methods were typically Chinese where he just would, uh, he would just go up there and give his lecture. And if you didn't get it, then you were stupid and you should go back and read his book again. Yeah. So, um, but he was a great guy actually, as it turned out and, uh. But, you know, in China, that's the way that the respect you give to the teacher is, is just that's the way you do it. You know, Right. Teacher says it, you learned it. What do you mean you didn't learn it? Teacher said it. How could you have missed it? <laughs> you weren't listening. You weren't listening. So, uh, but he was great. No, and I, I adapted fairly quickly to that method of, uh, of learning. And I spent a lot of time, you know, because I was learning Chinese at the time, I wanted to know all the names of the acupuncture points. So grasping the wind actually stemmed from that, because Dr. So emphasized the, that the names that were important, that those numbers were kind of meaningless, and, uh, and that it was important to learn the names. So, so I started studying the names and trying to figure out why they were called what they were called.
1: Now, yeah, you were like the first guy to do the, the names of the points,
0: really, in English. Yeah, there was very little stuff even in Chinese at that time uh, about the names of the acupuncture points. You know, there weren't a lot of Chinese medicine books in general. It was it's not like No, there weren't. Yeah, in those days. I'm I'm talking about in Chinese even. Yeah. And so to find out stuff like that was was difficult. I, I want to get into that in just
1: a second. You went to New England school, but did you graduate from there? Or no. You you went until Dr. So went and then you were gone.
0: Yeah, because um, you know, what was left after that, I, I'm sure they were very good teachers, but that wasn't what I wanted. I really wanted it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. hmm Why did he say go to Taiwan? Well, you couldn't go to mainland China in those days because it was a you know communist country and they didn't let you in. So the only option, I suppose you could have gone to Singapore or something like that, but he knew this guy in Taiwan. And uh, so he suggested Taiwan. I had a friend from Taiwan. That was the guy who bought me my airplane ticket. I was actually treating him. He had sciatica and... Uh, and we were talking. I never charged him for the treatment, so he bought me a ticket to uh, to Taiwan and, and and arranged for me to live with his brother-in-law, which was great, you know, because I, I landed there. They picked me up at the airport. You know, I was functionally illiterate when I got to Taiwan, and uh, and so it was pretty it was pretty helpful to have somebody there.
1: Well, it's it's helpful to when you're going to a foreign country and you don't know the language in particular, and the culture is a little bit different. Taiwan in those days wasn't.
0: They were still under military rule, weren't they? Yeah it was still it was still um what do they call that one uh, martial law martial law yeah, we we're still under martial law in those days. You couldn't go out into the uh, mountains and that kind of stuff. Because that was where you know Mao had uh, had gotten his he'd taken all of his troops out into the mountains and uh, and that's where he, and then came down and, and and conquered China. So they didn't want that to happen again in Taiwan, and they wouldn't let you out in the mountains. You had to get a pass to go out into the into the mountains if you want to go for a hike or something. So uh, it was a, yeah, it was a totally different place. It was uh, and it wasn't developed. You know, you've been to Taiwan, so you know that the uh, the Taida power the power station there. That was the tallest building in Taiwan. It was what, what, maybe, I don't know, 15 stories high or something like that. Yeah, Everything was, it was all the, the Japanese built, um, uh, you know, houses. That's, it was all that. And it was, it was tough. It was tough living. The pollution was terrible. The, uh, you know, there wasn't air conditioning. It was really hot. It was, uh, yeah, it wasn't a pleasant, wasn't a pleasant experience when I first got there. But Taiwan, of course, now is great. But in those days, it was, it was a lot different
1: incredibly developed. When when I got there, they were in the midst of building the tallest building in the world. Yeah, that was 101, yeah. That was Taipei 101, which, you know, and I'm, you know, I get there, I'm like, what is with these people? They're building the tallest building in the world in an earthquake zone. Like, are these folks crazy? Yeah, well, they did it. They did it, yeah. Well, the Taiwanese have a heck of a spirit. So, really, like, back in the early day, there you were looking for something to do something that might get you a couple of dates uh you you were just kind of knocking around and exploring stuff you had no
0: idea what you were getting into did you no and you know in those days when you talked about uh, chinese medicine it was pretty much acupuncture and i remember you know discussing it with people and and uh and they would go, oh, no, herbs is way too hard for Westerners. We, they can never, they can't possibly do that. You should uh, just study acupuncture. That's, uh, that's good enough for, for foreigners.
1: Good enough for La Wai.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I took that to heart. And I, that's why I really started to learn, you know, acupuncture as best as I could at, in those days. But when I got to Taiwan, of course, you know, there was an herb shop on every street. And uh kind of changed my mind about herbs. I said, no, no this stuff's pretty interesting. I want to learn this. So you get to Taiwan, your Chinese is pretty
1: horse horse tiger tiger. That's for sure. And like, how
0: do you go about learning medicine when you can't speak the language? Well, I could read. I could read fairly well even at that point. Um, so I had because I had been translating Chinese medicine books for a couple of years already at that point. Now, when did you start doing that? Uh, as soon as I as soon as I started to learn Chinese, I just picked up a Chinese medicine book and just went through it. Yeah.
1: Okay, so this is when you're in school. You're at Nisa, yeah, and you're studying Chinese medicine. So, like, oh, I guess, I guess I should learn some Chinese, and I'll translate something.
0: Well, I didn't know what to do with the Chinese, and uh, I didn't have any acupuncture books, so I, I got an herb. I got, I found some herb books in Chinatown in Boston, and, and there I went. Yeah.
1: Uh huh. So you've been digging into the source material from the beginning.
0: Yeah, there was no choice. There were no books on uh, there was no books on Chinese herbology in uh, in 1980, uh, you know, one or two, whenever I, whenever that was.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little more about grasping the wind about the point names.
0: Yeah, I mean, I ended up writing that book about uh, about six years later. I had gone after I went to Taiwan and actually came back to America for a while, for about a year. I came back to America and taught and and help one of my teachers, which we haven't gotten into. <laughs> one of my teachers in Taiwan wanted to come to America and, uh, cause he had a friend here and he was gonna uh, do some teaching. So, and he wanted me to translate. So, so I had to come back to America to, to do that for him. And so that was in 1986, maybe something like that, 86 or 87. So when I came back, I, you know, I was teaching, didn't have a lot else to do. I said, oh, let's get back into that uh, book on uh, point names. And uh, uh, I think I found one or two Chinese sources so uh then I could start uh, start doing it, but each each point name oh it would take me pro several weeks you know of research because they were often often you'd have to go uh look into uh you know these obscure Taoist texts and things like that to to figure them out. So I'd have to go and find these books, and it was uh yeah that was a that was a chore. it was it would have been so much easier to do it later on when there was an internet, yeah
1: <laughs> yeah, there was no internet back then. I remember when I first got to Taiwan, I was schlepping around a Chinese dictionary because, <laughs> you know, you need it to, like, figure stuff out. And, and then I, I got so lucky because within six months of being there, the dictionary was on a, transferred to a little – at that time, it was a Palm Pilot.
0: Right. I remember those.
1: I could carry a dictionary in, in a thing that was less than the size of a pack of cards. It was nothing short of a miracle. I'm thinking, how did people do this before? Well, you schlepped books.
0: Yeah, that was one of the thing, and the other thing, of course, is you had to you had to know how to look up characters, um, not by their uh, pinyin name or something like that. You had to be able to look them up by stroke order and and all that kind of thing, you know, by the radicals and. Yes, makes you learn your characters.
1: That's for sure.
0: It's actually a great way to learn Chinese. Is to learn to
1: look things up in Chinese.
0: Sure, it was good. Yeah, you know, I used to do. I had the. Um, if that, I forget the name of the uh, the, the dictionary, but it was out of Harvard, Wade Giles. was. That? I think it was a Wade Giles Dictionary. But in any case, so every time I would look up a character, you know, I would highlight it. And so I knew I'd, that I'd looked it up before. So you wouldn't, wouldn't believe how many times I would look up the same character and say, oops, I guess I already knew that one, huh? I would actually, Andy Ellis, I would believe it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's like, oh, this one, I know I should know this one. How many times have I looked it up? I have no idea. I'm gonna look it up again.
0: So anyway, that's the way it works. And you, know, you throw mud at the wall, and, and a little more sticks every time. And that's the that's the way you learn Chinese, I think.
1: Yeah. So, what's the importance of knowing the point name? I mean, in, in terms of of actual practice,
0: how's it helpful? Well, I think it gives you the uh, the overall view. You know, oftentimes when we're, when we're learning Chinese medicine, the way, the way I always approach this, I want to have the mindset of the people who did this medicine. You know, I want to, I want to, I want to get into their mind space. So they were looking at the body as a geographical uh, item, as a miniature world. And uh, these point names were locations on the world. And so they had meaning, just like New York has meaning and, and Chicago. I have no idea what Chicago actually means, but <laughs> it's probably an Indian name or something. But they, so, you know, they all, they all have meanings. And if you want to get into there the way that they understand the world, then you have to, uh, then it really helps to, to know the geography.
1: Hadn't thought about it as a way of thinking about geography, but that makes sense.
0: Oh sure, because the original, you know, the idea of chi uh, came from uh, from geomancy. You know, it was a picture of a guy trying to, you know, trying to find the the flows of uh, of water below the below the surface of the earth, and that's uh, so it's similar to what what we do with chi, obviously. Yeah, so that's what the channel. If you look at the character for channels, that's uh, that's where that's where it comes from.
1: Oh, okay. So the character for channels is searching for water.
0: Yeah, they were looking for stuff underground. You know, water was essential to life, just as Qi is. Yeah, that's for sure. All right, so you go to Taiwan. Is that where you would say you learned the medicine? Well, I think I got a good start from Doctor So. It was all in code. You know, I couldn't really get it a lot of it um, because he, you know he was translating to what he thought was an English equivalence of things. And uh, sometimes later on, you'd go, after you learn the Chinese character, you go, oh, I get it now. But uh, when you first, he would say stuff like, you know, the way he used the words hot and cold and and everything like that was just all so so foreign to to me at the time. You know, what is he talking about? And, uh, yeah, you know, but I still, nonetheless, I got a good... um, basis is it's a good basis in the in the in the real chinese uh sense of the word because in china what they do when when you're learning stuff and you're, you're well aware of this is that you memorize a lot of stuff and then and it makes no sense to you when you're memorizing it and then later on uh at some point what they call in chinese you get the uh the kai kai hua that means that the, the opening of the flower and you'll be walking down the street and you go oh now i get it and that I would have a number of those moments that, you know, as I was learning Chinese, I'd go, oh, that's what he was talking about. So I did get the good basis of Chinese medicine from Dr. So, but of course that was only acupuncture and in some in theory. But when I got to Taiwan, it was an entirely different thing. So um, yeah, well, I was very lucky when I got to Taiwan, I had to, after about six or eight months, you know, my speaking and listening skills began to catch up with my reading, uh, my reading skills. And in those days, we could even write Chinese, which I can't do anymore. And now I just pick out a character on the screen. <laughs> but in those days, I actually used to be able to write them. And, uh, and so in any case, I was very lucky because um, I met, well, two things happened. One is I wandered into this guy, Lee uh practice, and because people told me he, he, he likes foreigners and you should go in there and see what uh, see what happens. So I went in there. It was pretty funny, so he I go in there and we're talking and uh, he calls he gets on the phone and he calls Nigel and uh, and says, Nigel, you got to get down here I got, an, I got another foreigner here." And uh, so Nigel comes down and uh, he tested Nigel actually kind of tested me. You know, he said, "What does this mean? What does this mean? Translate this." You know, he'd he'd give me these uh, these uh, pull out a Chinese medicine book and uh, and I could do it because that was all I could do. <laughs> you know, if he asked me to tell him about the weather in Chinese, I would have been in trouble. But as long as we were talking about Chinese medicine, I was good. So he said, "Oh, good. You can help us with our project." And so they were working on fundamentals of uh, of Chinese medicine. Uh, him and Paul Simwetsky. and uh, and uh, he and Paul Simwetsky, if we want to be grammatically correct. So. Anyway, so I started hanging out at the Dr. Lee's uh, clinic, which was great. He's still there, you know. Dr. Lee, he's still doing it. And uh, so, yeah, that was that was one one uh, fortuitous thing that happened. And the fact that Nigel, um, you know, accepted me into the group was uh, was you know obviously really important. Uh, and then at the other, uh, this other guy, and whose name I don't remember, introduced me to a, a practitioner in the middle of the island who had an herb shop. His name is Shufu Su. And um, he had an herb shop and he was a Chinese medicine doctor. His father had been a Chinese medicine doctor. And he invited me to come down and live with him at his, uh, at his place if I would teach him English. And uh, let's just say it's a good thing that I was better at learning Chinese medicine than he was at English because I don't think he ever learned any English, but I learned a lot of Chinese medicine uh, hanging out at his, uh, at his place there. So it was an ideal situation. You know, I had the herb shop right, right on the first floor. Yeah, with the kitchen. And then uh, his family lived on the second floor and, and I lived on the third floor. And it was just a great situation. During the day, you know, Dr. Shu uh, Dr. would see patients and uh, I'd sit around listening. They were mostly talking the local dialect. I had no idea what they were talking about, but uh, eventually sir They were talking Taiwanese. Yeah, Taiwanese. So I eventually learned quite a bit of Taiwanese, just uh, at least listening level so I could uh, understand stuff. But anyway, the... Um, uh, the uh, I would I would fill all the herb formulas. I would keep the herb drawers filled. I would uh, slice all of the Huang Qi, which was Hong Qi at the, in those days, and uh, I would slice the Shou Di and the Sheng Di because it would come in these big things that looked like a turd, and uh, and we would we would slice them. All kinds of stuff. I would do some poucher. I would make pills. Uh, all that kind of stuff. All the dirty work I got to do. And then at night, though, I would study Chinese medicine, you know, with in, in, in Chinese medicine books and go over the cases that uh, Dr. Xu had uh, treated during the day. And he would, he would help me out as much as I wanted. He was right there, you know. So it was, it was an ideal situation. I couldn't ask for anything better. Yeah. Extraordinary, really. Yeah, very lucky. I mean, I, I not which, and I appreciated it at the time. I said, "Wow, I can't believe I'm doing this. I can't believe that this is that." I went to China, and I went to you know, in, in those cases, that was that's what I consider China, and I got to do this, uh, you know, this 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 stuff, and not only that, but we were working in fundamentals of Chinese medicine, and Nigel, you know, is a genius, a linguistic genius, and uh, and I got to study with him. You know, I got to understand the ins and outs of translation and, you know, making a glossary and all that kind of stuff and, that I hadn't really thought about previously and, and all the subtleties involved in translation. So I got, to, and every weekend I would travel up to, uh, up to Taipei and uh, meet with Paul and, uh, and Nigel and we would go over, you know, terminological choices. My role in that book was those two things. One was, uh, was helping with the t- terminological choices we were making And uh, and the other thing was I added in all the acupuncture. The original Chinese version of the book didn't have any acupuncture. And uh, Paradigm Publications realized that a book on herbology in those days would sell about six copies because nobody studied herbology. And if we didn't put acupuncture in there, Fundamentals of Chinese Medicine would have been a useless book. So I put the acupuncture points in there. Luckily, I had two acupuncture teachers in Taiwan at the time. And so I could ask their advice because otherwise that book would be, you know, that would be pretty sad. It would have been my opinion (laughs) about what goes in there. So
1: I'm just trying to imagine this. You're off to school, you do a bit, Dr. So leaves, you land in Taiwan. You're in the midst of attempting to learn Chinese medicine. You meet Westerners who are in the midst of translating a book on Chinese medicine. You're living with people that are teaching it to you day by day. And by working on this book, you're also deeply learning the fundamentals because you're taking it from Chinese into English as you're actually practicing medicine at the same time.
0: It's true. It was a very well-rounded education that I ended up getting and uh, further than that, actually, you know, I would go with my teacher to the, when he wanted to, you know, uh, get herbs for his herb shop, we would go to the various uh, suppliers. And so I would go with him and we'd go and we'd pick out, uh, you know, he'd say, oh, this is good. You know, he'd smell the herb and he'd tell me what was good about it, what was bad about it. So I started to learn a lot about the herbs themselves, what was good quality and that kind of thing. You know, he also used the concentrated granules. So I got to learn how to use those uh, according to, you know, the, the principles that people were doing in Taiwan. Yeah. Now, how was he using them? What do you mean? He was using in his practice.
1: So I remember when I was there, I got really sick one time. A Friend of ours, Catherine, took me to go see a Lao Zhongyi, who put together the weirdest formula. I mean, I remember looking at this formula and thinking, God, this guy is definitely past his pull date. If I if I wrote a formula like Doctor Jong wrote, my teachers would say, Go back and try, go back and think some more. <laughs> because he put together like three or four different formulas and then modified it with a couple of herbs. Uh-huh.
0: Oh, you mean he so he took the granules, uh, three three different formulas and then added in a few other herbs?
1: The granules, like yes. Yeah.
0: So is that how your
1: your your teacher was doing it too, or was he doing it in a more traditional way?
0: Rarely, rarely. Usually maybe two, two formulas, one or two formulas and then and then modifying with single herbs was his was his technique. But uh boy, I've seen guys I've seen guys in America that uh, there was this guy uh, in Florida I used to study with and he was from mainland China. He'd never seen these granules before, he had no idea what they were. But he just sort of treated the formulas as if they were single herbs. So he would use like he'd use like five and six formulas, put them together. So, well, yeah, I wanna I wanna supplement the qi, I'll put it in bujong yi tang, you know oh I think I should supplement the yin, I'll use some the way Dihong one. So yeah, that was his approach. Yeah. Which is kind of a Japanese approach, isn't it? Uh, no, but Doctor Shoufuzu uh, Sh- didn't do that. No, he was he was pretty conservative. Yeah, he was pretty much uh, he, was he used mostly Jingfang. He used mostly classical formulas. He was still trying to pass the test in Taiwan. He never did pass it, but he was still taking the test every couple of years. And uh, and so he had memorized all of the Han Lun. He had memorized the Bencao Bei Yao. All those all the all the, the books that you had to memorize. Uh, in those days, in China, in Taiwan, if you wanted to take the exam, if you wanted to pass the exam. So he was pretty classically trained. Yeah. And so you learn all this stuff,
1: you come back to the United States.
0: What happens after that? Uh, you know, I came back only briefly because uh, my teacher wanted to, as I mentioned, he wanted to teach here for a while. So I came back for a while. Then I ended up, we ended up going back to Taiwan in 1987 and um, so I was like 86. I left, and I couldn't have been 86 because in 86 I went to mainland China. Yeah, that's another story. <laughs> so I was I was teaching English in uh, uh, in Taipei, which is what all of us did. That's how that's how you made money. And uh, you know it was about 300 Kwan an hour, 300 uh, New Taiwan dollars an hour. And uh, you know that that worked pretty well. You could you could work about 10 hours a week, and you could you could pay your rent and uh, and you could eat. That was about it and study medicine yeah and study medicine exactly so we were doing that or uh and I was doing that and then I um so in 86 i was te- I was doing one of those teachers and one of my students came up to me after class and he said you know uh, i'm just here at this uh bushiban it was a, a bushiban was where i was teaching a uh, bushiban means like an after school you know supplemental education program and uh so I was teaching at one of those, and he said, I'm just here because I'm looking for a good English teacher. Why don't you come over to my company and teach? I'll pay you, I'll pay you $800 to acquire an hour. I said, okay, this sounds like a good deal. <laughs> so it turned out he, um, he was the, like, the vice president of Wayne Computer Company, uh, which was a big computer company that had an office in, uh, in Taipei. And he asked me uh, you know, if I would teach there, so I did. And I taught there for about a year. Then I, uh, I had to go home. My mother was sick, and I had to come back to America to help out. And I did. And then he wrote me when I was here in America and said, you know, back in those days, they had letters and you'd put them in a mailbox and then uh, two weeks later, you'd actually get them. And uh, and then you'd write them back. And They sent them on the Pony Express, right? Right. So it was one month between by the time, uh, you know, if he wrote something, it would be a month before he heard back from me because it would take two weeks each way to get back and forth. In any case, um, he invited me. He said that... Um, that they were opening an office in Xiamen in China, mainland China. And would I like to come with him to mainland China to teach uh, English to his, uh, you know, to the people in, in Wayne Computer Company? I said, well, if I can study Chinese medicine when I get there. He said, OK. So he paid for my ticket back to Taiwan. And then uh, I took a boat to Hong Kong and uh, got the visa and then uh, I hopped on a boat to Xiamen. Uh, there's a boat from Hong Kong that's still. It's still. If you ever get a chance to do it, it's a wonderful trip. I recommend that you do that. Go from Hong Kong to Xiamen. it's a, just a wonderful, beautiful trip. Anyway, you can go all the way to Shanghai on that same boat. And uh, anyway, so on the boat, I was, uh, and this this information, by the way, is all in in the book I wrote uh, called uh, the I didn't I, the book I translated called the Clinical Experience of Doctor Shi because this is how I met Doctor Shur as I was on that boat. And this guy comes up to me, I was reading a Chinese medicine book on acupuncture, and he comes up to me and he goes, wow, you can read a Chinese medicine book on acupuncture, this is amazing. And we started to talk, and it turned out that his father was Chen Yinglong, who, was the, who had been the head of the acupuncture department in uh, Xiamen. And as a side note, I'll mention that he was one of the uh, first um, disciples of Chengdan An, who also is who? Uh, Doctor So had studied with the same school. This is called the Cheng An. What do they call it, the Cheng Chengjiang. It's called the Chengjiang Jinjiao Shui 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 something Shui Pai. And uh, so it was the the school of uh, the Cheng Danan school of of acupuncture. Anyway, so they they from the same school. It turned out I didn't know that at the time. Anyway, so his father was uh, Chen Yinglong, and uh, Chen Yinglong was no longer practicing at the hospital, but his student was, and his student was uh, was Dr. Schur. And so this guy wrote me a letter, I uh, wrote me a, a little note of introduction to Dr. Schur. And so once I got settled in, uh, in Xiamen, first thing I did was go over to the hospital and see if I could uh, internship uh, with Dr. Schur. And um, yeah, he was excited about it, but they had to get uh, permission from Beijing so that took a little while and they didn't know what to charge me or how to do anything at all. Right, what do we do with this foreigner? And in those this is a long time ago. So they had the, they had separate foreigner money. And there was there was foreigner money and there was Chinese people money. And uh so the foreigners could only use the foreign money. And so there were special stores you could go into. So everybody wanted that money cuz so they could go in there cuz you could buy stuff in those stores you couldn't buy elsewhere. In any case, they figured out that they would pay me 90 uh, that I had to pay them 90 yuan a month. For uh, to get this to study with Dr. Schur. so ninety UN in those days was about eleven dollars uh, U.S. So I was paying about eleven dollars a month to uh, to study with Dr. So in the morning with Dr. Schur. in the morning I'd study with him for like three hours. Then he would have his little communist meeting. They after lunch they had to have their communist meeting. I don't know what went on there because I wasn't privy to those. Then after that meeting, uh, Dr. Sherwood would sit down with me and uh, and we'd go over all the cases in the morning and any other questions I had. He was he was an amazingly patient uh, individual, especially, you know, my spoken Chinese at that time was probably a lot better than it was, you know, originally, but still, you know, I'm still a foreigner, yeah. Still a foreigner. Anyway, so I went to mainland China in 86. And when I was there, I arranged that uh, Nigel and I would come back to uh, China in 88 and uh, and that we would bring a bunch of foreigners that means Americans and uh to Xiamen and we would translate for them and then Xiamen hospital would make a lot of money. And so uh we did that. We arranged all that and then in nineteen eighty eight we went back to mainland China. Andy they don't sound
1: like communists. They sound like capitalists. That's a very capital that's a very capitalist enterprise.
0: Well we were in the special economic zone. Yeah this was a special economic zone. Remember that that's the way they did it originally when they wanted to change from communism toward capitalism. Uh, Deng Xiaoping thought that they would have these uh, special economic zones, and
1: yes, hopefully they could contain the contagion. But that didn't work so well.
0: Well, God knows, I'm confused. Yeah. Anyway, um, so that so I don't know where we were there, but that so there was this uh, you know so we well you were studying with Doctor Schur because you met a guy on a boat. Right. Yeah. Who was related to Doctor So through the schooling? It wasn't related, to Doctor So. He was related to, to Chen Yinglong, and Chen Yinglong was related to Doctor So in that they both studied with this uh, Cheng from the Cheng Danan School. Now, was there anything special about that Cheng Danan
1: School, or was it just you know your basic acupuncture? Was there anything special about it?
0: Well I think they did have a unique uh, he was his point locations were all based on the Da Cheng, which is the what we call, I think we call it the complete book of acupuncture which was a Ming dynasty a late Ming dynasty text I'm pretty sure and um so the point locations were a little different than what was being taught you know in, this, in the in the modern acupuncture schools because they were based more on anatomy at that point you know because the essentials of Chinese uh, acupuncture in those books those those point locations were all based on western anatomy because so, they wanted to make it look good for the West, I think, or something. I don't know. They, they thought that the, the traditional location methods weren't specific enough. And so um, uh, and so that was one aspect, was the point location. And the needle techniques were very traditional uh, in terms of supplementation and, um, and draining. He had uh, very intricate methods of, of supplementation and and, and, and draining at each point. So, for
1: can you give me an example of what you mean by traditional and intricate?
0: Well, um, you know, all the stuff that you learn in school was kind of combined in what they call their midnight noon uh, method, and uh, it had to do with so the idea is that you were taking, uh, if you want to supplement, you're taking the chi from the outside of the body, the wei chi, and you're bringing it in to supplement the the channel chi. So you you uh, you insert the needle superficially, uh, and then you go down. You have to get the chi. And then you push it along the channel one direction or the other. So you can go, if you want to supplement, you go with the channel. If you want to drain, you go against the channel. The same thing goes with your needle manipulation, the way that you uh, move your finger and thumb against the needle. uh, that you, If you're turning it one direction, you're going with the channel. If you're turning it another direction, you're going uh, against the channel. So supplementation and draining was also used that way. And the idea is that, uh, and then if you wanted to, there's thrusting and what do they call that? Thrusting and pulling, or thrusting and whatever the opposite of thrusting is. So when you're going in, uh, when you're inserting a needle and you use the emphasis on the in, then you're supplementing. When you on the the emphasis is on pulling out, then you're then you're draining. So you're you're pulling things out of the channel. Uh, so all of those things were combined. You know, between the twirling and the the twirling and the and the and the thrusting and the pulling and the and the with the channel against the channel and then opening the hole or closing the hole when you're done. You know, either uh, either putting your thumb on the hole or not putting your thumb on the hole when you're done. Those were all considered to be uh, you know very important aspects of the supplementation and training techniques that were used. And getting the chi was also very important. So each point, and this was something I learned from Doctor So originally, each point had a had a feeling that was associated with it. When you put the needle in, if you didn't get that feeling, then you didn't get the point. And uh, in both interpretations of that phrase. <laughs> so um, anyway, yeah. So so that's basically the, the, the technique that was that they used. So that was that was a unique aspect of it. And the other thing is they were a little bit influenced by um, uh, Zhang Shichun. Now, because they were the school was just being formed just after Zhang Shichun had died. And Zhang uh, uh, Shishun is the guy who wrote the the book about um, Chinese medicine. You know, I never I remember how they translate, but with reference to the West or something like that. So his idea was to understand Western medicine and, and see how, how Chinese medicine and Western medicine could fit together, uh, what we could benefit from, uh, how Chinese medicine could benefit from Western medicine. So there was an aspect of that, of that as well in their in their thinking. Okay, so that was like the original book on integrative medicine. I guess he didn't reject all Western medical thought. They, they especially uh, took to heart the anatomical, uh, the anatomy, you know, and, and some of the physiology that Western medicine uh, had presented to them. And they said, well, how can this fit into Chinese medicine?
1: Now, at some point, you meander yourself back to the United States. Hi,
3: everyone. and Cecil Sturman here. Sometimes I'm asked whether it's difficult to shift to classical acupuncture and I say no it's the roots of the tree. Learning it feels like coming home like an anchoring. Gone is the feeling that you're piecing together bits from many styles or using one size fits all point combinations or diagnosing from symptoms or treating by habit and by that I mean for example treating every sinus congestion case in basically the same way sustained clinical effectiveness emerges because classical acupuncture focuses on channels rather than points the treatments are whole not fragmented you find what is uniquely required for that individual and treat from your own deep wisdom not your mind if you feel that i'm speaking to you i'd like to invite you to my second annual six month live online mentorship program for an extended deep dive transmission of the practical application, including pulses and tongue of classical acupuncture. Applications close December twenty sixth. Do click the mentorship program banner on my website and Cecilsturman.com. Yeah, I got back here in about nineteen ninety.
0: Nineteen ninety. So most of the eighty, the decade of the eighties, I was in I was in Taiwan or mainland China. 1990 I came back here by 1990 Chinese medicine is kind of getting up ahead of steam here in the United States yeah we had just published fundamentals of Chinese medicine it was uh, received with, with a thud and and uh because we were, because we used a, a terminology that people weren't familiar with at the time and uh it's funny because now we hear people using those terms all the time I have to say I just I I find it very amusing. I'll hear somebody use a word and I go, wait a minute, I invented that word. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you think it landed with a thud? Oh, you know, because um, we were using vacuity and repletion instead of deficiency and excess. We had things like depurative downbearing and other terms like that that other people had uh, had, had really just mostly ignored. And and they just didn't translate those things because they were too weird. Well, they are
1: weird. I mean, some of these ideas really are weird. I, I mean, even something as simple as, you know, sure and shu, right? Deficiency, excess, repletion, deficient. I mean, you know, one of the things that I've always been curious about, maybe you can throw a little light on this for me. I started studying this stuff in the uh, mid-90s and didn't know any Chinese and, and was hoping that I could somehow get through a Chinese medicine education w- without having to learn much Chinese, just to show you the ignorance that I had and then landed at a school where they made us study Chinese every single quarter that we were there. So, so much for trying to attempt to avoid your fate. But the thing that I, that I was curious about back then was, look, I, I'm a Westerner. I'm trying to understand something that's very, very foreign. There's different people that will translate a concept in different ways Maybe it would be helpful to try to understand what each of these different translators is looking at and saying, maybe I'll get a little closer to what that Chinese actually is. But instead, it seems like we have these translation wars.
0: Well, it seems like those have calmed down. I don't, th- I don't, f- I don't feel that anymore. Now I can use any, you know, I've, I've worked with all the different publishers, so I've used all the different uh, glossaries. I don't think it's a big deal so much anymore. First of all, they've kind of melded together. They, a lot of the terms now are the same. Uh, which is great. you know, deficiency and excess will remain will remain uh, different from repletion and vacuity. The thing to understand about uh, translational terms is that none of them hit the exact spot and it would be impossible because of the way that languages evolve. you know they evolve uh, each word has so many connotations and used in so many different ways that each word would uh, carries very many, a number of meanings. And so if you try to just pick one of those words or one word that has a couple of those meanings, that's about the best you can do. And then uh, from there, you're really uh, dependent on on definition. You know, people have to define the terms. That's why it's important to have terms. Uh, I think it's important for people to see when the same character is being used in Chinese. Uh, if you have different uh, English terms for all this, all those things then it gets then it gets very confusing for them and they're not getting an accurate picture. They're not getting the kind of feeling that the Chinese person is getting when they read the book. So um, that's something but no, I think I think those have calmed down, which is great. I did a really uh, like a whole uh, an hour lecture on the difference uh, on Shu and shu and, and and why you know why why we chose repletion and, and vacuity. But the truth is, that none of those words are, that it really matters what the words are. It's important that people understand what those concepts are.
1: Yes, exactly. And different words can help. It's kind of like poetry. You know, poetry doesn't aim directly at anything. It kind of talks around something. Different terms, especially going from one language to another, talk around something. It's that something that we're aiming at.
0: Well, I remember having a long discussion, we, you know, Nigel and I would have long discussions about this, deciding what we were going to do with repletion and vacuity, for example. And I remember that what I thought the best thing to do was just stick with sure and shoe. But he, he didn't want to do that because he said that the uh, foreigners would, would mess up sure and shoe so badly that um, that it would it would just, it really bothered him to hear people mispronounce things and uh, being a linguist. And so he just couldn't bear the fact of all these people trying to pronounce sure and shoe. And so he said, no, we have to come up with words. And, uh, and we did, and the, the, we wanted to actually have, we were deliberately vague and obscure in some of the words. And the idea was that, oh, well the people will have to look it up, what it means. They'll have to try to figure out what the word means. That will be a better experience for them. If we give them a word, like if we say deficiency or excess, then they think it actually means deficiency and excess, which of course it does not. You know, those, those are, deficiency and excess are decidedly quantitative terms. And the shoe and sure are decidedly qualitative terms. Uh, and so to, to uh, confuse them like that or to give a, it's sometimes that, that's doing a disservice to the reader. You're making them think they understand something when they actually don't understand it at all because you're being so specific. So it's sometimes good to be vague. And that's why we picked really weird words in some cases for certain concepts, which uh, I don't know if that's a, a linguistic uh, trick that other people use or not, or if that's something Nigel came up with. But it certainly it fit for, for going from Chinese to English.
1: Yeah, that, it's helpful to hear that. Certainly, before I learned some Chinese, I, I was looking to nail the terms down. So I'm, I would not have been a person to go, well, gosh, I'm not sure about that. Maybe I should investigate it more. I, I'm, I would have just looked at it more as that quantitative. I totally missed that nuance that it was qualitative. Maybe I should go look more. I mean, at this point, I get it. And I think often with our medicine anyway, it's often so qualitative. I mean, we have to stop and look and reconsider all the time anyway. It really is. But you know, more and more, you know, I think especially in our in our modern world with evidence-based medicine and protocols and all that, it, you know. I think folks are looking to nail it down. It's but it's hard to nail down Chinese medicine.
0: Yeah, I mean it's a it's an observation-based medicine, obviously. You know, you know, when you're observing things there's an awful lot of factors that go into that, including the person observing the thing. Yeah. Now you ended up with a little herb company. <laughs> I didn't end up with that. Yeah. So, um, let me see. Now we're skipping time here cause we were in 1986. I think now we're, when we got to 88 Then I was in 90. So I taught in, I uh, actually went to Florida and uh, had a practice for a few years. What were you doing in Florida? Why Florida? Doing acupuncture and herbs, and I taught. Uh, there was a school there. I taught at at the same time. Um, I had a very busy practice. of seeing about twenty patients a day. I just walked right into it because the uh, Dan Neville. I don't know if you you know Dan, but uh, Dan uh, had a very busy practice and it was overflowing. And he asked me would I come down and help, and uh, and so I did. So I immediately had all these patients. It was great, and so I stayed there for a couple of years and uh, practiced. Uh, and it was, you know, it was at the time of the when HIV was just—I uh, hate to use this word—blossoming, and uh, yeah. So the, I got a lot of experience treating immune uh, immune disorders, obviously, and uh, and all, all all other kinds of things. It was a it was an incredible experience. Um, so I did that for a few years. Then uh, then moved back to um, American College of Traditional Chinese Medicine, which I believe no longer exists. Uh, they invited me to come and. Uh, and teach uh, herbology at their school, and I thought that was great. And um, I decided to be a small fish in a large pond, as opposed to in Florida, I was a big fish in a small pond. And uh, and went to went there, and that was a very difficult time. I think just financially, because it's so ex- it was so expensive to live in the Bay Area, and acupuncture schools uh, didn't pay a lot of money. And so, uh,
1: and you didn't have a full practice right off the. Right off the bat.
0: Well, in Florida, I had a full practice. In California, I wasn't licensed. In, F- in Florida, you did, but not in San Francisco. Yeah. You weren't licensed. Yeah, because they had a separate license in, in Florida at the time. I mean, in California at the time. And there was no way I was going to do that again. So um, I just said, okay, well, I'll just do herbs, because you could still do herbs. And uh, and so I just did herbs. Yeah. And and so um, um, my wife, Shunjing, who had nothing to do, because my mother-in-law was taking care of the kids, said, uh, "What am I going to do?" <laughs> I said, "I don't know. Why don't we just start an herb shop?" So we started an herb shop. We borrowed three thousand dollars from some friends and uh, and started Spring Wind Herbs. And it was just an herb shop, you know, for my uh, patients and for my students' patients and for my students and um, and give your wife something to do. Right? Yeah, she had studied acupuncture and she knew a lot about herbs, so she was in good in a good position to, to help out with that yeah so we did that and uh and then it just grew out of control you know i had no business experience and no idea how to run a business or anything like that and had no interest actually in running a business because chinese medicine was my thing
1: and especially herbs okay so so here you are you're not interested in business you don't know how to run a business you're running a business
0: That's what happens. That's what happens when you have a family and you have to learn, you have to support them. And, uh, and you're trying to be true to the medicine at the same time. It was, a, you know, I was in the perfect position to do it because I had studied all this herbs, you know, I had been to herb suppliers. I had learned all about herbs in, in Taiwan. I had been on mainland China. I'd seen the herbs they use there. You know, it's, uh, I'd done all kinds of experiences that made me the perfect person, I guess, to, to come to America and say, Hey, you guys are using the wrong herbs. <laughs> so we did, we found out, you know, that they were using the wrong herbs, uh, in a lot of cases. So wrong herbs, here you are, this, uh, that who learned about his herbs in
1: Taiwan, you're opening up an herb shop, just help to support the family, keep the wife busy, help your friends out with some herbs. And you're finding some of the herbs are wrong. What, what were you
0: finding? Well, this uh, my awareness of this situation occurred before that because I had studied in uh, Taiwan and mainland China. and I noticed that a lot of the herbs in mainland China were different from the ones that were uh, you know uh, called the same name, but looked quite different from the ones in Taiwan. I tried to figure out what was going on with the, with that situation. So I started to whenever I would go to Hong Kong, I would try to buy there was some good bookstores in Hong Kong and I'd try to buy some books on herb identification. And luckily, right around that time, people were writing those books because they were discovering that in mainland China, a lot of the herbs at different markets were sold by the same name, but were quite different. And, uh, and so, um, and this is, the big divide, of course, is, is the southern herbs and the northern herbs. And so there were herbs that were being used in the north that were quite different from the ones being used in the south. So the Chinese government got into the act and, and started picking which herbs would be the official the official herb for under that pinyin name, under that Chinese name. So, for example, bansha should be penelia, and it shouldn't be typhonium. And yet in the South, uh, the people were using typhonium for bansha, and in the North, they were using penelia. <clears throat> in Taiwan, they were also using the Southern version, and in America, they were also using the Southern version, so they were using the typhoniums. And the reason... For that is that almost all the herbs that were exported both to Taiwan and mainland China all came out of the South. They all came out of Hong Kong uh, because there was not trade directly between China and other countries at that time. And so everything went through Hong Kong and what they were used to using in Hong Kong is what is what became common in the West. Uh, and in some, to some extent also in Taiwan, although there were differences between Taiwan and Hong Kong also. So sometimes there'd be three or four different herbs that were used for the same same item. So it got to be quite complex to try to figure it all out, but luckily, like I said, there were books being published at, around that time, so um, I had an advantage. But when I got back to America, I noticed that yes, there was you know Baihua uh, Sheng Ma, Shengma, uh, Xia. Uh, these are the ones that come to mind right away. They were, they were all they were all different than what the Chinese materia medica said they should be. Because uh, they were all the southern r- herbs. Then when you get to less common herbs, like things like Bai cao and uh, stuff like that, then you start to find out that, yeah, there's also a difference between the south and the north in that, in that, in that instance. Now,
1: how do you suppose the Chinese had been dealing with this? I suspect they've been dealing with it for a long time, the differences between the north and the south.
0: I don't know. You'd never read about it. You never heard about it. Yeah, they just and so it was really funny because the Banlan gun. There's a southern Banlan gun and there's a northern Banlan gun. Uh, the southern one is called Strobilanthes, I think, and the the northern one is is called uh, is Isatis. And they would run, you know, tests and they say, oh, this gun has antiviral properties and I'm beginning to think well okay that's great which ban gun has antiviral properties yeah so I don't and I said, to this day don't know what they used in those tests when they were doing those uh doing when they found that out or maybe they both have it I don't know but yeah and that's how banlang gun got associated with being antiviral oh because they did those tests sure because they did those tests but we don't know which one they did I don't know which herb they were using, you know, because they didn't, in those days, they didn't put the Latin names or anything like that. They just used, they just said ban gan, you know. And what was the, so were they using the southern ban
1: sha when you were learning from your teacher in, in central Taiwan?
0: And, oh yeah, in, in in Taiwan, they only used the southern, I never saw the northern ban, ban, I never saw that stuff. How would you say their function is different? Yeah, their function is different, slightly. They're both good for, um, you know, for phlegm in the lungs. But for the uh, downbearing the stomach chi, you really need to have the penelia, according to what uh, you know everyone says.
1: And has that been your experience as well?
0: Yeah. So in Pujong Tang. so in in uh, in certain uh, that was the, I was thinking of the Shengma for that one because they used the wrong Shengma for that. Yeah, they used uh, they used to use the southern Shengma, which is uh, incorrect. Yeah. So what you had to get was this stuff called the if you wanted the real Shengma, you had to order Guelian Shengma, which is great. It's the ghost the ghost face shangma because when you when you look at that the root itself it looks like this this you know this uh, monster and so um anyway yeah so and so that Shungma, uh was used uh in the south because it was used for smallpox and um uh you know to outthrust the the rash and it was effective for that and in, in regular shangma you know for the northern cimicifuga was also used for that and uh, and so they because they were both used for the same thing they both became called shengma. But in terms of uplifting qi, and this is where I, I was thinking of butong ichi Tang, In terms in terms of uplifting qi, you have to have the sima because the other one doesn't do that. the yeah, the the southern the southern uh, variety. They
1: both out thrust, but only one will raise the qi.
0: Exactly. So that and that was not uncommon. You know, a, a local herb that was used for the same disorder might might get the same name as a, as another herb yeah. makes it hard to learn
1: uh, herbal medicine doesn't it
0: that's certainly complicated matters yeah but anyway when i got back to the united States, when we when we opened spring wind you know that was one of the first things we did was try to educate people about what was the correct the correct species uh, that situation seems to be in hand at this point and so um yeah so it's not a big not a big issue now but i still spot uh, incorrect species uh, every now and then yeah. And I spotted it, you know, in the companies that were making the granules and that kind of stuff. I always asked them for, you know, I want to make sure that they're using the correct species. And we would discover that they were using the wrong thing now and again. Yeah. So that was one thing. And then then later on, uh, Springwind became famous for, um, for testing for pesticides because we were the first company to do that. We did it in the mid-80s, mid-90s, I'm sorry, not mid-80s. Mid-90s, we started testing for pesticides. And the reason for that was that, um, we had asked about pesticides in all of our suppliers. They said, oh, no, you don't have to worry about pesticides. The people in China are too poor. They can't afford pesticides. You know, I hadn't been out into the countryside, even though I had lived in China. I hadn't really been to the countryside where they grew the herbs that much. And so uh, I took a couple of trips out into the... Into the Netherlands, there is that the Netherlands, and discovered that every single village I went in had these big signs that said No Miao, No Miao. You could buy No Miao is uh, pesticides, and you can you can buy it you could buy it at every single every single little village. And I had to go drive by these fields, and people would be out there spraying all everything with pesticides. They're not wearing any protective gear or anything. They're just out there spraying it. And so I said, Oh no, this is a little out of control. We got to start testing for pesticides. So that we started that in the mid, mid-90s. mid yeah. It's curious, Andy, it
1: sounds to me like you have just kind of wandered your way through a career in Chinese medicine.
0: Yeah, it was wherever, I, whatever was needed, you know, I tried to do that, you know, because in bringing Chinese medicine to America, I think it's really important that we have the correct herbs. Uh, it's really important that we don't have pesticides in the herbs, or at least that And that's not really even the point. The point is that people should know if there's pesticides in their herbs uh, and then they can make a decision if they want them or not. So, yeah, it was just, you know, books need to be translated. I come across a book, you know how this is, you're in a bookstore in Taiwan, you go, oh man, this is amazing. I can't believe this stuff is written right here. I can just see, this is like having a teacher right here in my hands. And uh, why shouldn't this be available to other people? And so you want to make it available to other people. And that's what we were, that's what... uh, so, you know, whatever whatever needed to be done. I
1: mean, so many different ideas, so many. Could you have imagined, I mean, back when you were, let's just say first back in the United States, early 90s, what was your sense of where the profession was headed at that point?
0: Well, that's a good question. I think I had no idea where it would go or, you know, even, you know, in the 80s when I was, uh, when I was studying, we were Fundamentals of Chinese Medicine, we were Fundamentals of Chinese Acupuncture, uh, we did grasping the wind. I did a few other books. I did Dr. Schur's book. I did uh, you know, a few other books. It, even at that time, I had no idea who the readership was really. You know, we're trying to write for people. I'm trying to be a step ahead of them. You know what I'm trying to say? I'm, I don't want to write to what they already know. I want to write to what they don't know. And uh, we want to we want to do it in a in a fashion that's that's representing the what what we think Chinese medicine is. You know, at that at that time. Well, it
1: sounded like you were following your own curiosity as well. That there's certain fundamentals that maybe you had, and then you you read a book and you go, "Oh, this is amazing! This is new. People should know about
0: this." Sure, yeah, that's exactly true. You know, when um, I think uh, you were, I don't know if you were still in Taiwan when I found uh, Doctor Yu Jin's books, and uh, uh, he, you know, he wrote he wrote uh, a couple of books, and and those when I read that, I said, "Well, this is this is something." Westerners really need to to know about. This is a really accurate because this reflected the way that all the people I knew in China that respected, that I knew and respected in China. This is the way they did Chinese medicine. Uh, you know, the way that he was doing is based on classical on classical literature, but they didn't ignore the modern world at the same time. and uh, and it's, it was all clinically based. and those those were the uh, that was that was the way I had learned uh, Chinese medicine. I said, this has to be available to people. Yeah. Those books are particularly, particularly
1: unique and delightful because it's not just hearing from the doctor, but there's these discussions of other doctors that are also in the book. So you get to hear different voices and questions and perspectives. And like Chinese medicine has been for so long it, it's a dialogue, it's an inquiry, it's a conversation it's an ongoing investigation really and, and those books nail it,
0: which makes them fun to read. right And in another sense they' they're that conversation. you're talking about a conversation in time, but those are those books are also a conversation through time. In other words, it's the transmission of Chinese medicine uh, you know not just horizontally but vertically going through time. So here's what my teacher did. Here's how I changed it. Here's what you might try. You know, here's the area that still needs investigation, that kind of stuff. That's how Chinese medicine has grown through the, through the ages. You know, it's taken a few wrong turns uh, here and there, but uh, nonetheless, I think it's uh, all in all, Chinese medicine has grown. There's an awful lot of information out there now.
1: A lot of information. So back when you were first starting, of course... There was hardly any information. I mean, you had to wander yourself over to Taiwan to learn something. What would you say the challenges are now in front of us? There's plenty of information. We actually have a profession. There's licensure. People know what acupuncture is, or at least they've heard of it. They might think they know what it is. I'm still trying to figure out what it is myself. What would you say our current, I would say, uh, challenges and opportunities are for the profession?
0: That's a good question. You know, I'm probably not that not a great person to ask those things because I'm not that tuned into what uh, is going on in my own little uh, my own little shell. I do teach classes now and then, so I get to talk to to some practitioners. But I'm not, you know, I'm not part of the. Uh, I don't teach at any schools right now, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, so I'm not quite sure, and I'm not also also that, that educated in um, in where the profession is going in terms of. Integration with Western medicine—that all that, all that kind of uh, thing—as well. So the politics of it, I'm not that, uh, not that aware of. But I think that in terms of advice for people who are studying Chinese medicine and what they should do, you know, given this large amount of uh, information that's available and all the different schools that have now come to light, and you have so many choices, I would uh, recommend what Doctor Shur told me, which was that. Um, that you should first get a very good education in uh, one particular school of uh, Chinese medicine, and then once you have your your roots firmly planted, then you go uh, reaching for the sky. After that, then you start to learn other. You, you want to learn other other things. That's fine, uh, but get yourself grounded first in at least one uh, one discipline, uh, and, and then go go from there. So. That was, that would be my advice because otherwise you're just going to get confused. If you do a little of this and a little of that, you know, all this window shopping, then uh, I think that you won't be, a, that won't help you in your practice. It, what will help you is, is always having a really good basis to come back to. You know? Some kind
1: of stable foundation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the classics can do that for you, you know, cause that's where everything comes from, you know. So learning as much as you can about the classics is, uh, is, is certainly a good idea. I don't believe in just sticking to the classics. I know, that was 2,000 years ago. Things are a little different. And uh, I like the ec- eclectic approach, but I think that you have to have a very good uh, foundation. That makes sense to me.
1: I have found over time stabilizing a certain set of, I'm going to say, clinical skills It gives me something to work with. I can always fall back on it, for one. But it also helps me to understand anything else that I might be inquiring after. There's something about having that stability of something that seems reliable in clinic that I can keep coming back to.
0: Yeah. You know, which roads you decide to take, that depends a little bit on you yourself, you know, because remember that not only is your knowledge of the of the medicine developing as you as you go through the years, you're developing and changing as you go through the years. So what path you're going to pick is really uh, it's, all, it's also dependent on your personality, your your background, uh, your genes or whatever else it might be. But so it's an individual. Those are individual choices. But the pattern remains the same and that if you have a good foundation, then you'll that will actually help you to choose which which of those uh things you're going to. And then and and also uh, you're going to study. And then also it uh it gives you having that foundation gives you the strength and the confidence to try different things. That's my advice for practitioners. Not, that sounds like reliable counsel. <laughs> well, let me know. <laughs>
1: you know, I think that's something that all of my teachers that I've respected have
0: said like well try that let me know how that goes like take notes keep in touch well michael we didn't get very far we 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 we've gone over an hour already and we haven't even i haven't even touched on uh, so many things that I would have loved to uh, to share maybe we'll have to do another one at some point
1: what else would you like to share before we wind it
0: down no, I mean, I, we only got up to like 1990-something. Uh, <laughs> and now it's 2020-something. So uh, so there was a lot of stuff that happened uh, after that and and uh, that probably would have led us to some interesting conversations. But this is the way our, medi- our
1: medicine works, isn't it? You enter, you have an interaction with a patient, you do something, they have an experience, they come back and tell you about it. You do something else, next thing comes along. It's a very meandering kind of medicine, at least as as I've practiced it, and maybe because I'm a meandering person as well. And I think so often the way that we practice is less a reflection of the medicine and perhaps more a reflection of who we are with the medicine.
0: True. I think that some of my um, my urgency is that, of course, I'm getting older and you know i had this very unique experience i've studied with uh, very famous doctors in, in in china and some not so famous doctors that were also great and uh, i've learned all kinds of things that i'd love to pass on you know and i teach classes and try to pass that on as much as i can <clears throat> and so you you begin to have this kind of urgency that oh gosh I, I didn't say this i forgot to tell them this i forgot you know that kind of thing because i'm not going to be here for them to ask you know at some point
1: uh, do you have another book that you're thinking about that might have some of this in it?
0: You know, I think I'm done with books. I'm not sure. I keep saying that uh, because, you know, I've done so many books, and they're a lot of work. Yeah, there's a few books I'd still like to, to finish up, you know, books that I have uh, written but never published. Those are things that I probably would like to finish up before I head off to another world. <clears throat> but uh, God knows. We'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens.
1: Well, Andy Ellis. Thanks for all you've done for the profession.
0: Um, yeah, great. Thanks for all the profession has done for me. You know, it's a, it was a mutual <laughs> thing. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it really is, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You probably had no idea when you were thinking about impressing young women with being an acupuncturist that you would actually help to build some of the foundational aspects of of what many of us have been able to stand on in
0: terms of our learning and practice. Well, that's really nice to hear. I hope that that's the truth, because I don't think about that stuff very much. I do think about uh, you know, how much Chinese medicine has helped me in my life. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't even be alive now if, if I didn't know Chinese medicine. And I say that in all earnestness. Um, and then all the other people that, I, that I've been able to help just by knowing Chinese medicine. So that's the kind of stuff I think about when I think of Chinese medicine. I don't, I don't really think about the books much. I, you know, once I write a book, uh, I never look at it again. It's. Uh, I don't even have most of them. You know, it's just like that was something that had to be done and I did it. And it's kind of like, uh, no, I won't, I won't use a really terrible metaphor. <laughs> what kind of stepping stones, really, right? I guess, you know. Yeah, I don't. So I don't think about the books very often. So, but it's, and the people every once in a while remind me. I go, yeah, I did spend ten years doing that, didn't I? You know, so uh, yeah, it's good. To, yeah, you know, like when we were doing uh, formulas and strategies when we did the second edition, I spent ten years on that book to, and a lot of research. You know, that's not a. It wasn't just like uh, looking at some Chinese book and and translate it into into there. I did tons and tons of research uh, to for every formula that I that I added to that book
1: well and and you were part of a team in that effort,
0: yeah, and that was a lot of fun. working with Dan binsky was the was the greatest. yeah you know we'd have these conversations that I would just I'd go, I can't believe I'm having this conversation. You know we're talking about just really obscure and kind of uh, and minutiae of Chinese medicine, but uh, yeah it was it was it was it was really fun. It's what you get for
1: being kind of geeky, huh.
0: Uh, Yeah, that's what happened. You can't help it, you know, once you start getting into Chinese medicine, once you you start looking at classical literature and trying to figure out, well, what what did they mean? What were they talking about? you know? I think
1: a lot of us have had that experience of what the hell are they talking about? What does this mean?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And, And those answers can sometimes take a long, long time and not be anything like you thought they'd be.
0: Sure, and a lot of times it's that kaihua experience that I was telling you before. You know, you just uh, all of a sudden you come across something in another, another book, and you go, "Oh, now I get what he meant." When back when I read that guy, Jiangsu, <laughs> yeah. All right, Andy. Thank you for your time,
1: and uh, let's go have dumplings sometime soon. Sounds good. I'll meet you. I'll meet you in
0: Gongguan. Gongguan, 太好了. All right. <laughs> all right. Take care, Michael.
1: When I first thought of going to China to study for a spell a few years after graduating from Oriental Medicine School and shortly after a divorce, I ran into Andy at a conference and asked him about some places to study in China. His response How long do you plan to go for? I had thought maybe six months. It seemed like a nice round number and more than a tourist amount of time. His recommendation. Go to Taiwan first and learn some Chinese. And then, after six to nine months, I could make my way to the mainland and study Chinese medicine in Chinese. It was the oddest thing. I didn't really make a decision. I just knew in that moment that's what I was going to do. A year and a half later, I'm still in Taiwan, working on my Chinese. I'm most assuredly not the sharpest tool in language shed. At the end of each study quarter, I dropped back a few chapters in the book instead of moving forward with my classmates because I needed the review. I suspect my persistence came from finding a real delight in inhabiting the world of a foreign language and culture. And much of what seemed odd about Chinese medicine thinking is simply common sense when you're thinking in Chinese. That six months, it stretched into years. What I thought in the beginning was a detour, it turned out to be a kind of golden path. And I found out, as something Andy said to me as well, it never hurts to learn a bit more about something that you're interested in. Well, friends, that just about does it for today. I hope that you have enjoyed this podcast conversation and found something helpful that you can take into your clinical work and begin to investigate the next time you sit down with a patient. Geological is made possible by listeners like you who help to support the podcast. If you found the past hour or so to be of value, why not support Geological by leaving a dollar or two or really whatever feels right for you in the digital tip jar. Text the word podcast chi to the number 33777. That's podcast chi or one word to the number 33777. We'll be back again next Tuesday morning with another conversation on East Asian medicine and methods. Be sure to tune in then.